0: You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
1: I'm Mark Feinsand, executive reporter for MLB.com. Welcome to the Executive Access Podcast. Brian Sabian began his career as a scout with the New York Yankees in the mid-1980s, playing a key role in the drafting and signing of players, including Derek Jeter, Andy Pettit, Jorge Posada, and Mariano Rivera. Sabian would stay with the Yankees for nearly a decade before moving on to San Francisco, joining the Giants in 1993, before becoming the general manager in 1996. The Giants have won three World Series titles under his watch, winning in 2010, 12, and 14. I sat down with Sabian in his office at the Giants Spring Training Complex in Scottsdale, Arizona to discuss dealing with criticism, the Barry Bonds era, his successful run with manager Bruce Bochy, and much more. Enjoy this conversation with Giants Executive Vice President of Baseball Operations, Brian Sabian. Here with Giants Executive Vice President of Baseball Operations, Brian Sabian. Brian, thanks for taking some time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, you grew up in Concord, New Hampshire. I, I did. Was, I was Red Sox fan, maybe?
0: No. Interesting story. Um... My dad, for whatever reason, didn't fancy the Red Sox ownership or I guess the way they did business, so to speak. I mean, it was an easy place to get to and we did go to games. But uh, ironically, and I've I've said this before and people don't believe it, he, I can't say he was a Dodgers fan as much as he loved the way the Dodgers played baseball. Pitching, defense, timely hitting. He, He liked the National League brand. But you know, as far as games, including when you get into the cable age, every Red Sox game was was on. So I I didn't grow up a,
1: a Sox fan, baseball fan, but not a Sox fan. You obviously played as a, as a kid, played high school mm-hmm. ball, played at acre College in St. Petersburg, Florida. Uh, was there ever a, a dream of playing professionally? No, because oh. uh, you know I knew my limitations
0: and I, I had. Uh, a mind actually to stay in college coaching and then matriculate uh, to uh, an athletic director's position. In fact, my senior thesis was was just that: how to uh, get on a career path to accomplish that. And uh, out of college, I got into college coaching, and then from there, I began my scouting career.
1: When you when you sort of move from that college coaching into scouting. Uh, You joined the Yankees in 1985. How did that come about for you? Um, Pretty easy transition.
0: I was uh, the uh, head coach of the University of Tampa in Tampa, Florida, and there was an opening in that vicinity or on the west coast of Florida. The staff had been adjusted by the Yankees, and my college coach, Bill Lizzie, who uh, had uh, left college coaching himself and was in the, The front office of the uh, the Yankees got me an interview with uh, Doug Melvin. Doug at the time was the scouting director, and I actually started in the fall of '84. I took my college team through the fall program, and then um, that might have been one of the last years of the January draft. So, as soon as the college fall season was over i started to scout for the january draft and then my first full season with
1: the yankees as a scout was 1985 you would stay with the yankees for eight years moved up through the chain to director of scouting in 86 vice president president of player development scouting in 1990 what was it like working for george steinbrenner back then
0: you know i think
1: all the stories aside
0: uh, two things applied um He was always around, and because of that, he was omnipresent. Um, You had the opinion that he was everywhere, knew everything about everything. And of course, that wasn't the truth, or that wasn't possible for for any human. But uh, the thing I remember most is is his commitment to winning. And contrary to popular belief, he really, uh, in my estimation, my experience, uh, treated his employees really good. I mean, he was very, very demanding. But uh, if you put the work in and you kept your nose to the grindstone, uh, you were rewarded for it. And uh, whether it was in scouting as I started or then I took over in time, both scouting and player development, um, a lot of camaraderie, a lot of lifelong friends. Um, it, it was it was a great experience. I, I don't think I could have... Uh, accomplished nearly uh, what we've been able to accomplish, um, especially in San Francisco without that
1: foundation. Could you have imagined being there as long as Brian Cashman has been there? Uh, well, there, there was a path at the time
0: that um, you know Gene Michael was the general manager. I was kind of the understudy of sorts. But also it was a time that Mr. Steimer was out of the game and it was a little bit, quirky as to how we were operating, so when I got the call to come with Bob Quinn, who had left Cincinnati and was going to become the San Francisco uh, GM in 93, I kind of looked at it as a fresh start or more so, almost like an expansion type of proposition, Um, and it turned out just to be that, so it, it it was a timely move, and I think it was probably, as I look back, in, in my best interest. So to answer your question, I, I, I can't imagine being there that long, just like I can't imagine I've survived the test of time here this long.
1: You were with the Yankees during a very important period of their history, um, played a major role in the drafting or signing of guys like Jeter, Rivera, Basana, Pettit, etc. cetera. Uh, you couldn't have foreseen what those guys were going to become, but did you feel like they all had the potential to be very good major league players?
0: Um two things apply. One, our scouting staff was very experienced. And two, they were in lockstep with player development in, in some places in time in some organizations that's not necessarily true. I mean we have to turn over the what I call the clay to be molded by the player development people in um I think in all those cases um what they became at the big league level, it, including probably sooner than anybody would expect, um, was as the result of the development program as, as much as it was you know, scouting them and, and signing them. So it, it really worked hand-in-hand.
1: You saw Jeter play high school ball at Kalamazoo. Um, it's been said that George was hesitant about taking him. He wanted he preferred college players. He liked college players better. How much convincing did that take? And Have you ever thought about sort of how the course of baseball history may have been changed if you guys had not um, been able to convince but, you him? Know,
0: good question. He, he actually, that senior year, you can imagine the weather, played a you know limited schedule. Um, and I, I'm pretty sure he was nursing an ankle problem. So he, he wasn't as easily seen um, as we scouted him in every game that we saw him play in, literally. Um, but you, you, I, I think the 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 factor that influenced George the most, Mr. Steinbrenner, was his athletic ability. I mean, just off the charts. And um, George was big on on athletes, and as you know, he he loved two two sport athletes, which Derek wasn't. But uh, you know, in this case, where it's a premium position, and um, you know, we could tell if. We hadn't have taken them where we did. Somebody right behind us would have. So, I mean, it's not like, you know, it was some big discovery. It wasn't a huge reach. Let's say, right? no. No, no, it was not.
1: You, uh, you're an East Coast guy. You're working for the Yankees. You make the move to San Francisco. What was the biggest uh, adjustment in that transition for you as you went out west?
0: Well, at first, the family
1: separation.
0: And then, uh, because at that time... I was a quasi-assistant general manager, but uh, specifically I was running uh, player development scouting, which meant uh, you know, I had to put on one hat through the June draft and then take that hat off and get into the development side of things, which was the, the player movement and seeing all our affiliates in the second half, plus keep up with the major league team. So uh, I, I think juggling a lot of balls and, and a lot of times doing it to you know, without family, which is, is tough.
1: 1996, to become the GM. How different was the job 22 years ago compared to what it is now?
0: Uh, I, I can't say that the, the sport was a cottage industry of sorts, but, you know, it was simpler times. Um, what made it easy is that uh, Peter McGowan, our managing general partner, and even Bob Quinn himself, who was in the last year of a contract, the second half of 90, excuse me, 96, which would have been from kind of like the all-Star break on, uh, myself and Ned Coletti, um, were' kind of positioning ourselves um, to navigate things at the end of the year. So we kind of got a head start uh, in drilling down specifically with the major league team. So when the season ended, which was a rough season in '96, we knew the wish list and we knew, you know, the business at hand. And uh, it, it was a turning point in the organization because as we were constituted budget-wise, uh, and I'm pretty sure this, that uh, Bonds and Williams were damn near making half the payroll going forward. And if you want to get out of last place of the second division, unfortunately somebody's got to go. And, you know, in that specific case it was Matt. And uh, we got a heck of a return, and that was kind of like the basis for what we were able to do that off
1: season, going into '97, you, which men- completely revamped the roster. You mentioned that that Matt Williams trade, uh, that was your first major move as the GM. One local columnist at the time said you got back, quote, a throwaway package of half-baked journeymen. Uh, you defended the move in part by saying, quote, I'm not an idiot. In 2004, you also called your critics the lunatic fringe. That was pre-Twitter, so I can't even imagine. Uh, How thick does somebody's skin need to be in that GM chair when you have fans, media, uh, sometimes your own players coming at you with these kinds of things?
0: Well, it has to be thick, and I'm sure over time it becomes like bark or alligator skin to a certain extent. But having said that, nobody's tougher. I I can say this openly because I know a lot of people in baseball for a long time. You're your biggest critic, you know. You got to look in the mirror every every day, usually twice in the morning, before you go to bed at night. And uh, the, you know, the man in the mirror you have to deal with, and you have to satisfy or come to grips with. So, I, I think what we found out in San Francisco, especially when we turned things around in '97, ultimately got the new ballpark. That it, it was a sleeping giant. I mean, we really did have a great fan base, but because of the facility, Candlestick, in the past, and um, perhaps you know also coinciding with the 49ers, uh, you know, success in history at that time, um, our fans were kind of dormant, so to speak. But once we got got back to winning ways, like they had in the uh, the late 80s you could see that it, it really was a baseball town. And then good teams in the ballpark and, and I think the you know the fan base uh, really came
1: alive. That was gratifying. You dealt away a lot of prospects during your years as GMs, yet when you go through the record, none of them really jumped out as, as stars ever during their careers. Have you always subscribed? Uh, Brian Catherine always talks about the prospects or suspect theory. Uh, is it Proven big league talent always trumps prospects because you know what you're getting?
0: Well, I, I think sometimes it cuts both ways. One, the place and time you're in. And then two, um, you really have to know your own organization starting with your minor league, uh, reservoir talent better than anybody else. So you would hope that because of that, um, you're trading away the right ones instead of the wrong ones. But it's the nature of the beast. Now... I will say today's generation or the way the sport's gone and perhaps more indicative to this off season is that apparently younger players or prospects in some ways have become more valuable, prospects on the come because they're still prospects, than an established major league player. So um, I, I will say I think going back to when I started and move forward uh, from year to year, it was probably easier to do business where the person on the other side of the table, the other end of the phone, was more interested in getting a win-win deal done. Now I think there's too much gamesmanship where somebody wants to beat your brains in to get a deal done. But I, I guess that's
1: that's the new normal, perhaps. A lot of trades go your way, and I'm sure it's easy to sit back and look at the Jeff Kent trade or the Jason Schmidt trade and feel those were great. Some of them don't always work out as well. The Brzezinski deal comes to mind. How tough is it in the aftermath of a deal when you realize that you did not get the better end of the trade and it didn't work out the way you wanted? Is there a lot of second-guessing internally in your No, but it
0: just shows how fallible the process is because it's not autocratic, the decision-making or when you make a trade, there's a lot of people that are in the room saying yay and nay. Um, and when something does go wrong, um, not only you have to deal with it, you have to take, in some cases, corrective measures to redirect you know, the course of, of the roster, so to speak. But um, that one certainly did sting, but uh, having said that, uh, those were in the minority, really. That's one thing
1: we're really proud of. What was it like watching Barry Bonds in your uniform during the heyday of his career, knowing that you had that in your lineup every day?
0: Well, you know, it's interesting because I go back to my my days with Stick, and he, he, as you know, was probably the, the I, I would say this uh, convincingly, in anybody's front office, as high a position as he had, he probably was the dean of scouts. Okay but especially the scout scout in that position. So he really th- saw things very clearly, and, and he loved players for the right reason. And I remember before I left in 92, of course not knowing that uh, ultimately the Giants were going to sign Bonds, but uh, Stick was so impressed with him at, at that time because um, you know, he was an MVP ca- caliber player, playing left field like nobody's really seen, like a center fielder. Um, and he had the five tools, and he had power and speed, and he had, he had the defense to go along with it. And I, I remember how much uh, Stick enjoyed watching him play and, and coveted him. Um, so I, I had a working knowledge of perhaps what would uh, – you know, ultimately, be a, a good, or great situation for him coming to uh, San Francisco. Now, ironically, not only I think what helped him come alive in San Francisco, but also helped that '93 team uh, be a real deep offensive team, is that we had Matt Williams and we had Will Clark in the same lineup.
1: Pretty lineup. <laughs> <Good to, yeah. laughs> Didn't make the playoffs. Still no. Still one of the most amazing and, ever. And uh, no, we did not. Um. The Giants did get to Game 7 of the World Series in 2002 before falling to the Angels. What do you remember most about sort of that whole series and how tough was it to to sit through that Game 7? Yeah,
0: interesting story. In Game 5 at home, I forget the score, but we we whacked them pretty good, and I was sitting with my dad in the box after that game, and he was uh, suffering from macular degeneration of his eyes. and really couldn't see a heck of a lot on the field. And I remember asking him what he was thinking. And it was really profound because the next day we had a travel day. And he says, well, you know, tomorrow is an off day, and then you got to go down there and find a way. And looking back, I think where the team was and the way we won that game, if we had played the next day, we could have played them on the moon uh, or – In this case, let's say in Anaheim. And I think the team was poised to finish or or get the series over with. But the off day kind of was a short stop on the momentum. And then we followed up game six. And, uh, you know, game seven was really a blur. Something that I never thought I had erased until Kansas City game seven.
1: You you made a flurry of moves after that 2002 season. Giants went on to win 100 games the next year. And you won the Sporting News Executive of the Year award. That, that's voted on by your peers. What did that mean to you to win that award from from your your colleagues?
0: Well, looking back, the the, the game um, as I came into it, uh, there were, were a lot of uh, long-standing executives in all positions of, of, of uh, major league front offices. So, as you, as you stated, when when you realize it's from your peers and We had some heavy lifting to do. Uh, Two kind of had to get over the shock of Dusty leaving. Uh, And then more specifically, um, we kind of went out of the box a little bit, not in our way of thinking, but in the public view, uh, to take Felipe back uh, or get him back in in the managerial position, which I thought would be a natural fit, and it was. Um, And we, we had a damn good season, and as it turned out, uh, we just weren't strong enough in the bullpen as that season was winding down. And ultimately, that was that's what probably cost us the, the series in Miami. But um, we're very proud of that year because it's not easy to go to the World Series and then turn around and win
1: 100 games with a new manager and, and a lot of new personnel. So
0: it was gratifying.
1: You talked a lot about being in win-now mode during Barry's career because you said when you have a player like Barry Bonds, you need to do what you can to try to take advantage of that. How disappointing was it never to have climbed that final step with Barry? Well, I think you look back and, and you, you kick yourself for how you could
0: have changed the course or, or you know, fate, so to speak. Um, I think now, having reflected back as you kind of opened the conversation with what we were able to build, as far as a foundation in New York, and then we've really built two different foundations here when we've had success. One was the first wave of the pitching, the Lincecum, Kane, Bumgarner, uh, Brian Wilson, et cetera. Then the second wave with the position players, Posey, Bell, Panic, Crawford, et cetera. So you're really at the mercy or the timing of how fertile your minor league system is or you know, getting your own talent to the big leagues because that's the best core you can build. Very difficult in today's game to try to do that or replicate that from the outside. So sometimes you just are waiting for the next wave or, um, you know, a couple real good drafts. Um, And that's kind of what we went through in in the the four losing seasons. Um, Felipe's last two and Bruce's first two. And then the system caught up. And uh, 2009, we had a pretty good uh, team for most of the year and had a chance to make the playoffs as as the wild card. And I I think we finished two or three games out, but that kind of catapulted us into the, the 2010 and beyond
1: window. When you signed your extension in 2007, Peter McGowan stressed that the organization was going to install this new philosophy of building around young players, even if it meant missing the playoffs, and sort of what we've seen in the last few years from the Cubs and the Astros. Uh, after all the heat you had taken for not developing homegrown stars and all the rest of it, was it sort of a welcome change for you to go back to those roots, kind of like what you were talking about, that you guys had built with the Yankees and seeing, obviously, the success that they had had with, with their group? Well, it takes time. And I, and I
0: think uh, that's un- underestimated um, now what we have built now with the fans expectations uh, more so what it costs to go to a major league game or CR games let's say specifically uh, I'm not sure there's going to be any window where they go to the public and say hey for the next three or four years we got to put the brakes on this thing so you're constantly trying to reinvent yourself and uh, one of the reasons we went forward and added, in this case, from the outside, uh, like we did this year, is that we believed in the core at hand um, as they were going forward, as well as the next wave really was a year away from coming to f- fruition. So I, I think in in the best case, you always want to be in a a winning but developing stage at the same time so as much as you you want to win you want to be producing and developing players at the major league
1: level also and
0: quite frankly when you get up there in payroll that's what balances
1: the book at around the same time there was also a new approach organizationally in terms of using analytics as an old school scouting guy who got his you know his start and really had basically been a scouting type for most of his career did you did you take to the analytics and some of the advanced metrics right away, or did, did it take a little while? It,
0: it was over time. I, I, I think uh, maybe on balance we, we were uh, scouting-centric. I don't want to say first and foremost, but uh, as we drilled down on, on how we would view a player, uh, a lot of those boxes were checked off. And then as you went forward, and were introduced uh, to the analytics side of how you would uh, again, review or, or evaluate a player that uh, they do go hand in hand. And, and I think we're probably as, as balanced now as any organization, which I think is the, the smart way to go. Uh, I don't know if it's the best way to go yet, but uh, we still believe in scouting and we are, we're
1: embracing the, the new wave you have to. Was there a sense of, I mean, the analytics revolution sort of started on the other side of the bay you guys do business your way, they do business their way. and then all of a sudden, now all 30 teams have analytics departments well, a But you know thing. what?
0: You know what? The analytics world started a long time ago. The Yankees platooned in the '50s, and that was statistically based. Um, if you looked at Sandy Alderson's teams offensively, huge OPS oriented. So it's always been in the game, but certainly not this sophisticated.
1: Or as this, you know, as we've seen, it's such a deep dive. What did uh, what did it mean to you, 2010, to see the Giants finally get over that last hump and win the World Series for the first time in San Francisco?
0: You know, in terms of the group at hand, whether it was the ownership group or the people in the organization, uh, that was very gratifying because you know we were disappointed in losing Game Seven and O two and you don't know how and when certain opportunities come back around again. So the fact that we pulled it off and it was the beginning really of our, our best window in San Francisco as far as success is conter- concerned. Um, having said that, I think something is uh, not as simple, but um, eye-opening was the parade you know, the turnout, and you realize that, you know, this was a regional thing, this was Northern California, this was, you know, a generational thing, and uh, it, it was, uh, you know, it was a lot of closure for a lot of people, um, fans and, and, uh, and the organization, so that, that was very cool experience, that that raw emotion of, you know, how
1: big it was to the community of Giants fans. Two years later, you win again. Two years after that, you win again. How did numbers two and three compare to the first one?
0: Well, you know, I guess after you go to one and you lose in the seventh game, you get another opportunity, you do win. Um, Probably in the back of your mind, um, you're waiting for the next one if there's an opportunity to be involved in the next one. And you realize how fleeting it can be. you know, in, in in really a short period of time, if you count the 2002 season through 2014, we went to four and won three, and that that's pretty good for a team that was uh, probably not necessarily on everybody's radar as a juggernaut or or um, you know the pick to click, let's say. Um, so I, it it was humbling, and it 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 showed you that. Uh, Ownership has to be very involved and appreciate the, the place and time you're in or, or actually the window and what it means and and uh, we had great backing we, we, we really did we weren't you know at a loss for adding players
1: or adding payroll as we went forward and, th- and that helped a lot of the three championship teams you once said you were particularly proud of the 2014 team for the adversity it faced you said it seems like crisis management ruled the day more than ever what was so special about that group
0: you know, they were all three of those clubs that won, were all different in a number of ways. Um, maybe the biggest irony is that the 14 team, in some ways, mirrored the 12 team, which, um, and I'll digress for a minute and talk about the 12 team first. Um, we were humming along pretty good and then the Melky Cabrera news hit and uh, we had to go forward without him and as you know in that year uh, we faced uh, Dusty's Reds and really got outplayed and knocked around the first two games at our place and you had to go there and do the you know imaginable uh, and win three games and then you know the, the series in, in St. Louis wasn't too favorable so um, whether it's 12 and some of the core had experienced that now moving into the 14 season, um, there were some similarities as to you know how you uh, stay in the moment or, or more so. Um, every game's a big game. Uh, the, the more you go to the playoffs or the more you experience, especially a World Series, you know, every pitch is a big pitch, every at bat is, every inning, in every game, is and you you have to be resilient. You you really have to go with the flow of whatever's going to happen. Um, and for some reason, both the 12 and especially the 14 team was was able to make adjustments uh, on the fly, in, including their their emotional maintenance, which it, it takes a lot because at that time of year. Um, everybody's worn down and there's a lot of pressure and it's taxing physically even though you have the off
1: days so uh, mentally you got to be in the right place you've seen a lot of impressive things on a baseball field most of them probably done by Barry Bonds where does Madison Baumgartner's 2014 postseason rank in terms of most impressive things you've seen on a baseball field
0: well you know he's he, he's such an interesting study because uh, for the longest time here, if you go back to the 10 World Series and how young he was, you know, literally a man-child, and cut his teeth in the World Series in 10, um, I, I guess nothing, let's say, would surprise us, but um, we knew if we got in the position that that we had to use him, not only would he be ready, but... Um, we might have to ride that horse for a while. And as it turned out, um, Affelt was the bridge to get him in the game. And, and I actually thought, from a, um, a competitive standpoint, or, or really just the gamesmanship of him being in the game, kind of wore on Kansas City a little bit. Because, um, you know, he, he, he was going to die on the mound. And he certainly you know, gave a, an effort for the ages. And he, he's an interesting uh, athlete, I'll say, I'll say that much. And, and the, you know, it's one, one thing to be that competitive, but it's, an, it's another thing to back it up with a performance or just that,
1: that uh, machismo. A writer once noted that there are peanut vendors in AT&T Park with bigger egos than you. Uh, in a profession where praise and criticism come and go with regularity, has the attention ever bothered you? Uh, yes. I I I would say,
0: for two reasons. One, I grew up uh, in you know very humble surroundings, and my my parents were uh, great mentors in that respect. And uh, more so, I think when you, when you come through the Yankees like I did, um, you understood that the the product was on the field, that your best. Marketing tool or your best ambassadors are people in uniform, manager, coaches, especially the players, and that that's their domain. And that you know, as you matriculate in a front office, you become a you know a high-ranking executive. It, it it's not about you; it, it's about those guys. So, um, I've never liked the spotlight. I, I've never sought it. I understand you know it's a necessary evil. Um, but I've done a good job staying true to myself, and I keep my distance when I have them. Now I'm around a lot, and they know I'm as competitive as they are, and they know that I punched the clock like them. But uh, I'm not down there holding their hand, or I, I can't tell you the last time, whether it's here with the big league team or even when I go out and see a minor league affiliate, that I've been on the back of a batting cage that's somebody else's office. Um, but there are other people in the business that think they have to be out there and available and seen, and um, that,
1: that kind of, I, I guess, visibility is not me. never has been me. You said that the Giants do more work on a player's background, how they'll fit into a clubhouse, than maybe any other aspect of their game. Uh, you said, quote, we don't have a star system here, everybody's got to be a link in the chain. Is that been one of the keys to the success over this past decade especially I think so because uh, what's the old
0: saying you, you don't want to invite any ants to the picnic and and, and, and somehow for some reason you know one out of bounds personality or perhaps behavior therein is a real irritant or it can be an agitating force and uh, you live and learn and every team is different you know some some teams have the alpha male or some teams have guys that much like your question to to me you know want to be out front and there are guys that just want to punch the clock but the 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 biggest thing is um, you know we want guys that that know how to come to work you know know how to be a professional kind of do it in an understated way and um it's 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 not easy to be a major league player. Um, I think this sport, unlike the other sports, mirrors life because you play so many games. And uh, the longer I've done this, once the season starts, to me, especially when you look at your pitching and, and how that morphs as the season goes on or, or, or more so who's available, who's not, or really the ups and downs, it, it's like the season is one long game because today's game is going to affect tomorrow's game. Tomorrow's game is going to affect the next game. And, and the organization, but more so the, the 40 and the 25-man rosters, is a living, and breathing and organism. It needs maintenance every day. It needs tinkering every day. And that's where, you know, a real astute or above-average
1: manager and coaching staff can really help that process along. After uh, 18 years as the GM, 2015, you're promoted to your current title, effectively handing over day-to-day control to Bobby Evans. You worked on things including international and amateur scouting, your minor league system. Did you miss the day-to-day of it? Did you feel detached at all from even though you were still No, I, I,
0: I never was, but I, I, I knew that um, it was Bobby's place and time and his turn um, I can't say that I had had my fill or I needed to take a step back, but you know, whatever your profession is, I, I think there are times that you do have to reinvent yourself not only for yourself but for the organization. And I, I really appreciated the time that I had when I was removed from the day-to-day operations to drill down mm-hmm. on kind of quality control and, and where we stood against the industry What were the the Joneses as far as our practices and, and, you know, how we were running things in in those three departments, player development scouting and internationally? Or did we have to do something to keep up with the Joneses or pass the Joneses? So those three years, in my estimation, were very valuable. I, I learned a lot about what's going on in the game. And how or why people are doing certain things, and what we need to do to stay current or more so get out of the curve?
1: This year it was announced that you're going to be more involved in every aspect of the organization, getting back into some of the big league day-to-day stuff. What prompted the change? Well, when you lose 98
0: games, I, I think, as Larry pointed out, you know you want every resource, it's all hands on deck, and we're all here to serve, and I certainly serve ownership and Larry and, and whatever's in the best interest. Um, so I, I guess the model, perhaps, is a little bit more like 14 previous than you know. Perhaps the, the last three years were, um, you know, I would help facilitate things, or more so uh, involvement in meetings. Where now, you know, it's more or less me kind of deciding how and when to uh, to move forward on any subject. And, and as a result, um, perhaps bring some, I, I guess, uh, experience. You know, I, I do think, and I think Dusty was one of the managers that said it best. You know, The longer you do something, and if you really love it, you have the passion, and you've had success, you should get better at it. So I don't know how this year is going to turn out, but I know that, 98 losses was a reality. Um, I don't think we're a last place organization or a 98 loss organization because I don't think we're those kind of people professionally and personally. So therein, it really is the same group of people maybe with some title changes of sorts or, or different levels of involvement, but we've all been really help cooking the meal for a long time together. Does that stability help? In that case, it has. Now, in other places in time, you know, there, there needs to be, I guess, the smartest guy in the room. We don't operate that way. Uh, we like to get everybody in on the first guess. And we bang both sides of uh, an issue or a subject about as good as you can. But, um, I think in today's game you have to be really agile and open-minded, and, and know when, uh, you know, there's this some trepidation or, or you see the cautionary signals a little bit sooner perhaps. But the only way you can do that is, is that you got to have everybody involved. You you can't be locked in the ivory tower, so to speak, and just
1: trying to do it on your own. You've described Bruce Bochy as calm and cool. He's described you as fiery and emotional. Uh, do you think the differences between the two of you are one of the reasons why you guys have made such a successful pair for such a long time?
0: You know, it's possible um, because we we kind of have that yin and yang in our friendship. Um, to that point, you know, I know how and when to approach him, um, and what time of day, and. There are nuances to that, you know, depending on where you're at during the season or, or before and after games, and, and you learn that over time. Um, I, I think the the best quality that we each have, which is, you know, I guess the ultimate mutual respect, is that he knows that I can't do his job and I don't want to do his job. Yeah, so I'm not going to force feed really anything, whether that's a, a – an agenda or even a lineup, et cetera. And and, and he knows how difficult our jobs are and the stress that we have. And he doesn't want to play general manager. So now, from my past experience in two organizations and as I move forward in my career, I think one of the biggest pluses is from... people in uniform or the players end specifically, if they see that the general manager and manager are in lockstep and really like and enjoy each other's company and are are spending a lot of time together uh, doing the right thing for the team, and that's backed up by ownership it's very tough, and you, you know how clubhouses can be. You know, it's us versus them mentality. Them is always upstairs. Um, we, we've tried to avoid that, and I think you do it by showing them that, you know, you, you've got their best interests at heart, but there, there is a common bond, and it's a strong one. It's not superficial.
1: Last one for you. You've accomplished a lot during 30-plus years in the game. Uh, got three rings to show for it. Do you have any specific goals or aspirations you'd like to fulfill during whatever remaining career you have left, however many years that may be?
0: Well, the, you certainly would like uh, a chance at another one. And this this turnaround is uh, not going to be easy. And we, we are stepping out of bounds a little bit from the norm in, in that uh, – we did add from the outside. We didn't decide to take a step back and pare down. Now, that could come. Who, who knows in some form if, if this doesn't turn out starting this year the way we want it to. But uh, every year's so different, and I think that's what we've all learned. That um, And Bochy's got a saying, you know, n- nobody's smarter than all of us together. So we got to figure out how to get Competitive and then back to the playoffs after getting embarrassed and losing 98 games but in some ways um, maybe we needed that in a weird way maybe we needed to be knocked back on our our heels and then you know with that comes you know the fire and the competitiveness and the passion back that's that's why you're in it so to answer your question i I don't have a finish line on how long I want to do this I love the game my family loves the game um, Ben, it, it also is a sport that later into life, or, or I guess there's no standard retirement age. You can always do something to contribute, and I think that, uh, or I hope that that's with the Giants, you know, for the rest of my professional career. And, and uh, we've, we've all got a lot to be proud of, and we've all uh, enjoyed the successes together. And we've enjoyed the failures together, which. I guess in some cases, so uh, really teaches you how to, you know, how how to learn on the fly. I think one of the things that I look back on the three uh, World Series teams and the 2002 team, you get to the point where the team or the atmosphere around the team is that they love winning, but they hate to lose almost as much or more than the winning, because when you're good, you know you're going to win. But when, when you're losing and you know you shouldn't be or you, there's, a, there's a different level of being pissed off or how you compartmentalize that. And I, I think that that's one of the things that we've we've grown uh, together, knowing that uh, as long as you hate to lose and you, you kind of put that
1: that if that's burned into your brain, it's going to be easier to win. Brian Sabian, Giants Executive Vice President of Baseball Operations. Thanks very much for your time. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Many thanks to Brian Sabian for taking the time to sit down for this week's episode of Executive Access. Our next episode will feature a conversation with the Cubs President of Baseball Operations, Theo Epstein. We'll talk about his time with the Red Sox, Kevin Tower's impact on his career, breaking a second curse in Chicago, and much more. You can search for Executive Access on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long. If you like what you hear, leave us a review while you're at it. We always appreciate those. And be sure to spread the word and tell all the baseball fans in your life about executive access. Until next time, I'm Mark Feinsand.